Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I'm your host, Ness in Birmingham. Today we are talking to Paul Matisse. Paul is co-head of the biotechnology research team at Stiefel, which he joined in 2018. He was named a runner-up in small to mid-cap biotechnology in 2019, 2020, and 2021, and a rising star in both 2015 and 2016 by institutional investor as part of the publication's All-America Research Team Rankings. Prior to joining Stiefel, Paul was a senior biotechnology analyst covering small cap and mid cap companies at Lyrinc with a focus on neuroscience, central nervous system and rare disease. Paul covers a broad range of small to mid cap biotech companies and is well known for his analytical scientific approach to company diligence. Today we discuss advances in the fields of genome engineering and CNS disease in the backdrop of the current market environment. Paul, great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time for this. Paul, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, obviously, you've spent a lot of time looking at the spectrum of companies out there, new therapeutic modalities and applications of those modalities. Um, you know, you, you, you have a very diverse coverage zone uh, and from a therapeutic implication standpoint, a pretty diverse area. I'd like to start with just talking about gene therapy and, you know, where are we in the gene therapy landscape, viral delivery systems, there seems to be a lot of chatter and continues to be a lot of chatter around AAV and the potential of it. And clearly context of application is critical. So from a disease uh, setting standpoint, how are you thinking about gene therapy, AAV, and the specific applications of it today? Yeah, great. Thank, thank you, Ness, so much for having me. It's always awesome to talk to you. We've always learned a lot from you and enjoyed our discussions. I think... Um, from an investor, I'll, I'll answer this from an investor perspective and a clinical perspective. From an investor perspective, um, if you're an optimist, it feels like we could be following the trajectory of oligonucleotide based therapeutics. There was a period, right, where there was the early hype train, right? The, the early IPOs, RNAi winning the Nobel Prize, some initial POC. Then there was the big safety setbacks, right? And the overarching debate around, hey, is RNAi intrinsically toxic? With ASOs, are we going to be able to avoid thrombocytopenia? And then drug development kind of evolved from experience to becoming much, much more rational, uh, more tissue targeted, things like that. So for gene therapy, right, you know, we had Dolgenzma, uh, we had Luxerna, um, you know, we had the initial data for Audentes, and then certainly the, the safety setback thereafter. And then, you know, over the past couple of years, I think investors have lived through just a huge string of clinical holds and kind of this overarching unbettability risk on the safety side, right? I mean, we all can kind of, you know, sort of guess around what are the right questions to answer related to safety with gene therapy as investors, right? We're thinking about immunogenicity, hepatotoxicity, oncogenesis risk. But what it feels like this space is kind of dealing with is an FDA that doesn't totally know how to grapple with these issues. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but, um, but you know, one thing that we've been kind of looking to for both a regulatory benchmark and then a benchmark for kind of companies and giving companies guidance around, you know, where AV can go clinically, regulatory, commercial, are some of these upcoming catalysts with Unicure and Biomarin related to reviews for hemophilia gene therapies, which, you know, after an advisory committee last year, I think these reviews are going to give us a good sense of where the FDA is right now with their comfort with some of the theoretical risks with gene therapy. Um, so that's kind of, I think, just the general state. Now, like on the clinical side, right, um, there still is a lot to be excited about um, in different areas, right? I mean, we've got the stuff going on in the muscle space, right? We're going to get some data from Sarepta next year. Um, you know, that could be a scenario, right, where you've got a gene therapy that you know, you can you can debate the magnitude of benefit, but the reality is that's a huge unmet need, and um, and certainly seems like it has it has a decent shot based on our conversations with KOLs in the space. Um, you know, in CNS, I think gene therapy has proven to be more challenging um, than it was originally hoped. Um, and then you've got a number of other earlier stage programs that are kind of percolating around. But I feel like the regulatory backdrop has been the most complicated piece of this from the investor side. It's hurt the ability of companies in this space to raise money. And so I guess my hope would be, as someone who's kind of generally rooting for this stuff, um, would be that the FDA can kind of clear a path and clear a framework for companies to sort of understand what they're grappling with. And, and I do think that if this works out with Unicure and Bomberin, we could see some reinvigorated interest in the investor side and maybe companies starting to gain back some of the momentum. Well, you know, on the reg side and specifically around AAV, right? The, the FDA had the advisory committee 
what, last year uh, on AAV and put a briefing document out around that. You know, it seemed that it was one of the first times that the FDA really kind of stood up and raised multiple areas of consideration, right, for any developer of AAV. Is that, while I agree, there's still some opacity around it, I thought that that actually really was a step forward and that the, that the FDA really were kind of raising some flags to us to say, hey, look, you know, we're very much aware, we're seeing all the data coming in. We're very much aware of these as issues. We actually now need to figure some of these issues out or some of these areas for further exploration as we think about broadening the applicability of AAV. Is, is, that, right. is that a misinterpretation or is that, is that aligned with how you actually looked at what the stance the FDA took? Well, it's really interesting because, I mean, at the end of the day, right, Matt, you know better than me. You're the one who's uh, tried to develop a drug. I just, I, just, I just kind of pretend to be a drug developer, an expert for a living. That said, you know, I think when you look at some of the dialogue, we were just kind of going back through this over the past week as we worked on the research on, on, on this whole hemophilia gene therapy space. It felt to us like the FDA was airing out a lot of their concerns, but there really wasn't in the, what, much in the way of recommendations for sponsors, right? Like if you think about oncogenesis, you know, I mean, there's this dialogue that, you know, we've seen some integration, some risk of cancer in mice. We haven't seen much in people. Have enough people been dosed? Um, and when you go to the expert dialogue, there's this kind of discussion of, well, look, it's going to come down to risk benefit. And, and I guess I look at that as kind of going around in a circle. And I'm like, well, really, how far did we get? And again, from my perspective, right, which is different because it's trying to handicap these things and think about stocks. I don't know how to price that kind of risk times as it just relates to, you know, we're worried about cancer. Cancer's terrifying. We can't trivialize it. Um, so if it comes down to risk benefit, I think you have to try your best again from my seat to look at, um, to look at one of these programs in the broader context, but it's still tricky. I, I guess what I would say for you, to you is maybe some of these other things were a little bit more tangible. It does feel like the dialogue around hepatotoxicity if we segment cancer risk, we do know what to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, CMA risk, we know what to look for. DRG tox, I felt like maybe that was more discussed as a preclinical finding, less problematic clinically. So, so maybe some of this stuff, I guess I, I agree, right? And they did add kind of things for companies to think about. I, just, I guess if I were at a company, and I don't know, you know what you would think if you were giving advice to a company, I, I still don't know exactly what to characterize. And I still don't, or I guess how to characterize these things. And I still don't know where the line is, right, for FDA risk tolerance if I'm going after a disease that has therapeutic alternatives, which, you know, many of the next wave genetic medicine programs are. And I still feel like that's kind of an overarching question with the FDA, which is why I'm so interested in the upcoming Unicure Padufa, because I think their clinical data are so strong that at least from what we can see as a public market analyst, segmenting CMC it feels like the only credible path to a CRL for that program would be based on some of these theoretical risks. And that's why I just think it's a fascinating window into how much the FDA is willing to kind of weigh these things on the risk benefit side. Right now I'm optimistic for Unicure, but I still think we don't totally know. Right. The, you mentioned Audentis cause you know, you look at acquisition of status cause in Corset, um, I think there was an expectation. I don't know if you would agree with it, but I think generally there was an expectation in the marketplace that, Strong balance sheet with Astellas, experience, expertise in place, probability of sec- success probably higher than, you know, than, than normal. Um, and yet we've just seen program after program fail through that following that acquisition. Are, are investors com- com- coming back to that and consistently coming back to that as being, okay, well, that, that's actually raised a lot of questions or is that the exception in your mind and not the rule as to how we're seeing this movie, how, how, how we look at AAV as a delivery vector or vehicle moving forward here? Right. Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of things, right? On the clinical drug optimization side, my sense is investors just kind of have trouble thinking about these gene therapy products in terms of, in terms of knowing what they don't know, right? So I think people have a hard time like intrinsically looking at something. Um, you know, if you're an investor, right, you might meet with five gene therapy companies they all tell you they have the best in class manufacturing. They all tell you they have the best in class vector capsid combination. You know, you might meet three companies that all have a different vector capsid that all tell you it's the best one for a certain tissue type. And I think when you combine that with some of these shocking safety setbacks, 
Um, I think investors have gotten a little bit less comfortable with just taking a leap on what they find, you know, functionally unknowable, right? And then you look at that and you look at a scenario, right, where an M&A deal didn't work out. And at least right now, right or wrong, the perception from investors that I talk to is probably not that much M&A interest in this space, mm-hmm. right? And, right? And we need to kind of figure out drug development in AAB in more of the way we do it on kind of an SAR basis with small molecules before uh, before we're going to have big pharma coming back in it and taking the leap. I, I, I don't know. What do, what do you think now? I agree. I think that there is this level of uh, caution now that uh, the Audentis data really, and other data in the field, right, where you're actually seeing clinical holes being put in place, continued CMC challenges as companies are trying to move into the clinic. Um, I think that, that really that's going to dampen down enthusiasm. So it was interesting to see Voyager continue to shift in, you know, to the expansion in AAV and, and, and driving cellular tropism uh, or stereotypes around that. Um, when there's, there's part of me that's like, well, you know, as you know, I am sort of look at va- uh, viral delivery vehicles and say, you know what, they're too challenging. Like there's too much uncertainty around them. Um, overall long-term durability, tox issues, repeat dosing, CMC, you know, cost of goods, QAQC for release specs for them, you know, are all flags to me. They're all concerns for me. So I've kind of shifted away from that, from an investment paradigm and any of the companies I've been working with really into turn around saying we need to find more synthetic vehicles, right? So obviously lipid nanoparticles are one example of that, polymers, uh, micelles, uh, exosomes, um, where, you know, the, the opens up the potential A for a greater greater opportunity for multi-dosing. Um, there is certainly complexities around manufacturing for those in CMCs, especially for things like exosomes. Um, but it gets you away from a lot of the challenges, I think, that, that viral delivery systems actually are. And the tropism, you know, or really driving to cell, cellular selectivity, the viral titers are still pretty high that they're using. So, right. you know, I haven't quite gone away from this point of, you know, people are talking about dialing in effectively, you know, cellular targeting. And I look at the titers that are still being used here and it's like, well, you're, you, it's, it's, it's shades of gray. It feels like it's shades of gray. It's not binary. It's not like you're really right. shifting to that sort of, it's not like a Galnac or something where really you're driving it to a specific cell type. And that's predominantly where you're getting at, at uptake. Now, obviously, liver is a lot easier. So, I don't know. I think there's still a lot of questions around it. Yeah, I was going to use the Galmec analogy, honestly, in the exact same way that when you talk about, you know, a vector that has best in class tropism, right, it's got great tropism to, you know, muscle or this tissue or cardiac, right, we're still usually talking about, you know, but the minority of the drug product going to the tissue of interest, right? And so, um, you know, that's why I kind of use that original analogy with RNAi. And obviously, RNAi is a huge, tremendous success story. Not every new technology is going to is going to end up that way. But it feels like there's so much room for improvement here. Um, and it feels like maybe we got a little bit ahead of ourselves and the regulatory environment has shifted. And, you know, maybe, you know, with some continued investment and learning, things can shift back. The, the last thing I would just ask you, Ness, about AV, and I guess it's kind of informative too, when we talk about delivery for, you know, a, lot, a number of these genetic medicine technologies, is are we kind of, are we now at the point with AV where we really need to figure out other ways to deliver it, to drive, to drive preferential biodistribution? Like we've kind of just hit the ceiling on, you know, work with what we're working with. I, I, you know, that, that is a real concern. I think it's coming from two different angles, right? One is, you know, what cells are we actually getting them into? And are we getting enough payload actually in there to drive actually therapeutic benefit? But the second one is as the complexity of our genetic medicines are getting greater and greater and the size from a capacity standpoint is actually increased. We're not talking about, you know, I think some companies are talking about delivering two, if not three different viral systems or viral payloads to a cell to be able to get the edit or the modification or the actual benefit that they actually need. And if you think about the kinetics of that, forget, put aside your CMC, put aside your drug product, just the kinetics that you've got to drive to, to be able to actually have all of that happen. You know, that's, that's pretty challenging. So, you know, we... We're, we're, the 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 challenge the challenges are, it doesn't feel like the challenges are getting easier as time is passing it actually feels like we're layering more and more challenges onto already a pretty challenged system right right yeah makes sense so that kind of shifts us into well last question was on gene therapy just generally forgetting AAV but just a general area of gene therapy 
are you actually see are you enthusiastic about it is it a place that actually you know that pivot into more curative now um uh, approaches is actually there or we're close to it and you it, we're set it's and is set to revolutionize or do you think putting viral vectors aside that we're still actually having to address multiple aspects that are, are challenging here i think there's still things that are challenging i mean i think over the next couple years, right? Could we see on the investor side, you know, a resurgence of interest? Sure, right? I mean, because we're coming kind of from a low point, we could have a couple positive regulatory decisions. We've got some big clinical data readouts coming up next year. So I think there's a there's the possibility, right, that um, that we see more company creation, more interest in gene therapy, simply because, you know, perhaps things have kind of gotten overly, overly negative, right? And I'm not blaming anyone, right? I mean, it is scary when the FDA is you know, putting a biomarin program and PKU on clinical hold on data from a mouse model that we don't understand. But like, you know, realistically, it, it does feel like there could be, um, you know, a bounce in kind of industry enthusiasm with some, you know, medical breakthroughs that are that are coming through. I think more broadly, though, like, to your point, there still is, there's still so much to figure out, right? It still feels like we're kind of crudely targeting different systems in the body. And even simple things are still being worked out, right? Like take steroid dosing, for example. Like we were kind of going through this again through the lens of, you know, this potentially being a topic during the Rockavian review with the FDA. Steroids were given one way in the phase one, two. They were given a variable way in the phase phase three. Then there's a separate steroid prophylaxis study ongoing. Then you look at the Pfizer-Sangamo study, they did a different way. It's done a different way in hemophilia B. And so I think there's even components of dosing these programs that um, that are maybe a little bit more trial and error. And I think, you know, some of the companies today are being forced to kind of figure this out in front of a more conservative FDA, whereas, you know, you go back to when Zolgensmith got approved. I mean, how many patients of data did they have? Not much, right? And a lot of it came from an investigator study. So I think we're kind of, I guess I'm hopeful, Ness, that we'll know a lot more and maybe we'll have a few more gene therapy products approved over the next year or two. And that, and that can only be good, but... Um, but I agree kind of with your analogy against the Galenac, right? Only were we really where we are today with RNAi therapeutics when we can kind of truly control where they go and, and functionally then have true control over therapeutic index and it doesn't feel like we're there yet. Right. And I think, you know, the, the avidity dying data is going to be interesting also as we think of uh, looking at other moieties or modalities for cellular targeting receptor uptake. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Denali's data, obviously, also getting up into the CNS. So it really it feels like we're starting to get some indicators, and there's more data coming in that is that that may may drive us outside of the liver finally, you know, uh, and get that right. uptake that's required in other cell types. Um, yep. Editing. So you've looked a lot at genome editing and the the the, the versions of it. Is What's your take on it today? It, it almost feels like every second day there's a new company it, that that ostensibly calls themselves a genome editing company of one form or another. You know, are you able to parse through it all and get clear clear signals or readouts in it, or is it still you know the second, third, fourth generation still up in the air and you're waiting for data from those? I mean, I'm talking to the the founder of Intellia, right? So obviously, <laughs> I think it's awesome. Um, I mean, look, obviously. It, it, Obviously, it's incredibly exciting, right? And you can, you know, through editing with some of these diseases, in the best case scenario, right, either, you know, hit diseases hard in new ways that, that we couldn't access before or, or take a disease that's even decently treated and, you know, change a patient's life and, and make, his, um, make he or she feel like, you know, tangibly they don't have the disease anymore. You know, I've been spending more time in the editing space um, you know, in places like TTR or in places where uh, where there are other therapeutic alternatives. And to be honest, in those areas, I've had a lot of trouble kind of thinking through, you know, if I'm building a TTR model, what what am I supposed to input, right, for, for editing in the out years, right? How am I supposed to think about the competitive dynamics of that, right? I mean, you take this initial Intellia data from last summer. I mean, it's awesome. Like, how can you... How can you even debate it, right? Like, I think it looks great. Um, but, you know, the I feel like the regulatory questions that we're talking through with gene therapy are there in editing and maybe even there to a greater degree, at least, right? Right or wrong, right? Like, if you read these FDA editing guidelines, 
you know, the discussion around pursuing diseases with therapeutic alternatives is a discussion about, you know, not approval, but even just conducting a phase one study. So, I, look, something has to give, right? Because I just think realistically, especially if you have all these editing companies going, you know, doing systemic trials, XUS, like, I, I don't think the FDA is going to, I don't think let the U.S. just completely, you know, be behind the curve, right, on, on, on innovation. But, um, but that is, I think, the intriguing piece with editing, right? Because if we want to go towards bigger markets, um, naturally, we're going to go to places that often have, you know, a drug, right? Um, and uh, the regulatory path on that is a piece that, you know, I just tried my best to handicap that for hemophilia gene therapy. And I say tried my best because it's tricky. I don't really know how to do that for editing a TTR right now. And I guess, so again, from someone who's, I, you know, generally really thought favorably about Nylum and their place in TTR, I don't want to be dismissive, but I feel like, you know, it's, it's still kind of an early competitor, which is also weird to say because it's an early competitor who might have, you know, functionally come as close as possible to curing a subgroup of patients. So that's kind of how I'm balancing enthusiasm and some of the lingering uncertainty. Again, Ness, I would love to ask you, right, if you were giving advice to, to Intellia, right, or a company that's doing systemic editing in a disease that, you know, maybe it's an unmet need, but maybe there are therapeutic alternatives. How do you advise a company like that to, to work with the FDA when the FDA is putting out guidelines like this that are just, I think, just making this dynamic super tricky? It's, uh, <laughs> there's no easy answer to this, right? I mean, TTR was a clear initial target because you had two different modalities that had already been in the clinic that showed that you could actually knock this down and effectively you know, knock it out and have no negative repercussions or implications on a patient. So from a safety standpoint, and the human genetic data was very supportive of that. You know, it's, it is, it's an interesting challenge now as you look at, you know, non-inferiority or running superiority studies. How do you actually do that? And that's really important from a payer standpoint. You know, it was just at a, at a, um, a meeting there, uh, sitting on a panel, where, you know, the question a pair asked, actually two pairs, you know, asked questions around, how do we figure out which therapy we should be paying for? When should we be paying for it? And from a durability standpoint, what is the durability right. actually ultimately going to look like? So if you look at ICER and the calculation that they're doing, there's a set sort of durability or duration of effect that's going to be, that's inputted into those models that we still don't know if that's actually going to be the case. Uh, where you've got in the liver, where you've got an organ, this was obviously a big debate, right, in the industry, was where you, in the liver, where you've got such a high turnover from a cellular standpoint, as you have in many, in many different tissues, you know, are you getting into the stem cells and modifying those so that actually you have a much better chance of a longer term durability effect? So, right. you know, I think that, you know, there's real considerations around that. You know, you expanded into something, you know, I think, it, you know, looking at Verve going in with base editing. To me, sort of base editing obviously is the next wave that we're seeing coming through. And there's, so, there's, a, there's a level of elegance uh, around that, that, um, that we all hope that, that the technology will ultimately allow us to be able to actually do, right? This idea about what you can't do really with CRISPR-Cas9 is to really go in and actually do a, a single change at the DNA level or RNA level. Obviously, there's endogenous systems like ADAR, as you and I talked about before, you know, that enable you to do that for RNA. For DNA, really, those systems aren't there. So, you know, the work that, you know, Verve has been doing, Beam, you know, all at Prime to an extent too, um, really does open up the value uh, proposition for the modality. I think coming back to your point, the key question now is, those modalities, were they best applied? So is PCSK9 the best place to, to actually utilize a base editing approach? Um, when you have, a, you have commercial, you know, you have patients that are already on chronic treatment for it, you know, SEC, I think, appropriately argues that, you know, if you look at these patients and post-MI, they're not on any sort of, uh, you know, uh, treatment, um, no lipid lowering, um, and for people who put on chronic treatment for these, they, they invariably stop taking it or there's, they, they take it intermittently. So a one and done where effectively you can forget about it and walk away, you know, there's an attraction to that. But the, 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 the value for a pair is certainly questionable or, or it's not questionable is the wrong word. It's certainly an area that they are focused on and thinking about. The challenge to me is um, the speed that we're seeing conversion of modalities to commodities 
is really picking up. So, you know, we look back at... Do you mean that that's from like a company creation perspective? Like we have something interesting and then suddenly there's there's eight well-capitalized venture-backed companies, all with talented people working on it? That or you, there's a vendor out there that actually will do, you know, will derive the sequence for you and do the screens for you. So, right. you know, if we, if, we, if we think about, you know, areas like SIRNA, ASOs, you know, any format from an antibody, you know, be it monoclonal, be it bispecific, you know, CombiCam, the speed that we've seen these platforms and these modalities move from proprietary in-house capabilities to more of a commoditized modality that you can get a vendor. And, 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 and I understand, excuse me, I'm being very flippant about IP. Uh, right. And, but, you know, let's just put that to the side. And it's not, it's, it's not a non-trivial issue. But the commoditization rate is really fast. So to me now, we're getting to the point of the biology is our problem. It's not our modalities or the toolbox. It's actually the biology and defining the right biology uh, to actually deploy the technology against. And you bring up alnylam, and I think it's a very good point. So, you know, you talk about the safety and tox and all the concerns around SIRNA originally. In Atlas, when I was there, we were one of the first investors or early investors into alnylam, right? So we saw it in real time and the publications right. that were coming out. The number of publications around off-target activity you know, was reminiscent or, you know, was, was the precursor to exactly the same thing that came out in CRISPR-Cas9, right? So, and all of those have been, have been resolved. But for SI, similar to, you know, genome editing, everybody thought this was going to cure everything. Like it, it could be applied right. to everything, Vi you know, uh, infectious disease, oncology, genetic disease. And the reality is it could conceptually be applied to all of these things, but practically speaking, the best utilization of it where it has a um, profile or value proposition for a physician and patient actually is very much set. So defining that and understanding what it is, I think is probably one of the biggest challenges to companies now with novel technologies, defining what it is and very quickly exploiting it or deploying it for those applications and doing that quickly. You know, the, the, my final comment on this, and again, you and I have talked about it, is if we're all chasing the same indications, we are by default facing two very significant risks or three, right? So one is obviously just running our clinical trials. And as we look at in, in the rare disease space, being able to access patients to, and in an IONC also actually, being able to access your patients to run your clinical trials becoming more and more and more of a challenge. The second yeah. one is you're constantly looking over your shoulder. And, you know, we define the stage that we define our target product profile is pretty early in the process. And then effectively, you're defining your development candidate on the basis of that. Does it meet my TPP criteria or not? And then do I have a backup that either is equivalent or ideally has some profile that's better? And that may be from a safety or dosing standpoint, right? Off we go into our IND enabling studies and then into the clinic. And yet, you know, I'm just choosing a random number here. You've got 10 companies that are, that are also fo focused on the same indication that are generating their same internal data. So you really run a risk for the profile of your drug that actually it's going to be completely irrelevant at the point of approval, at the point of right. phase three, because some other companies come along with a much better profile uh, drug. So I think that for companies now, I, 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 I'm almost coming back and saying our biggest issue in our industry is delivery and it's actually biology and understanding the biology and what right. we should be targeting these technologies against. And then you get into obviously patient stratification, understanding the actual patient you're enrolling into your trial and whether your drug is relevant to that patient ultimately or not. Yeah, yep, yep. No, it makes sense. I mean, it is interesting that to think about, you know, obviously how exciting it is that there are so many biotech companies that the innovation cycle feels shorter, that, um, that, that some of these, these, uh, complicated, you know, technologies can go from new to suddenly, you know, anyone or with some level of expertise can work with them quickly. It's great, but it does make you wonder, you know, is it going to be a lot harder today to build, you know, to build yourself, not, you know, not into like a, you know, a small to mid cap biotech company, but, but how, how much harder will it be to, to build a large cap biotech company from scratch? Right. You know, I was talking to one investor about this recently and we we're talking about Alexion and how, you know, for the last four years that Alexion was a public company, 
Uh, you know, they had tremendous success, success selling Stellaris and Altamiris, but there was always this overhang on their stock related to kind of competition and biosimilar risk. And, you know, every day there was a new complement player. And he was making the comment that, you know, if Alexion went public today, the second they had phase two data and PNH, there would be seven venture back complement companies. So I kind of laugh, but it's sort of true, right? And so it does make you feel like on the one hand, right, we've got, you know, so much more potential. Um, you know, for transformative new technologies, for biotech to have a huge impact on society. At the same time, it's, I think, going to be harder with these next wave of companies for someone to, to kind of get that level of escape velocity simply because the model is not maybe going to give them the same level of market share that it used to, especially when we're talking about these rare diseases that, you know, you're, com- you're competing over patients, like you said. And it clouds the system then as data is coming out, right? You know, but, right. I, but I think the market downturn that we're seeing now, you know, it, I think it's going to set investors back to basics. You know, you look at, the, you know, there's been a couple of pieces that, you know, investors have put out to basically say, well, what is the learnings and how do we think about building our companies now going forward? And there's almost this like, duh moment, like, look, what you're writing about, we already know. It's not like right. we actually don't know this. But it's a bit like walking into a bar, you know, use the tequila analogy a number of times. Right? It's like you walk into a bar, you've got to, you say, I'm going to have a drink, right? You have a tequila or you have a drink, right? You start to feel warm and fuzzy. You feel good about yourself, right? You're talking to somebody next to you, you know, and then you have a second one and then you have a third one. And the next thing you know, you're waking up the next morning and you, you've got a hangover. And you're like, I'm never going to do this again, right? I should have known. I should have just stopped at two, right? Or whatever. Or it's like eating food, right? I mean, I should have stopped. And then... Two weeks goes by and you go out and you do it again or three weeks go by and you go out and do it again. And it, it almost feels like our industry is very much like that. You know, we kind of go right. in, you're right, we, we see an idea and everybody's chasing it. You, you suddenly go from one company where there's a level of validation around the technology and the approach and then suddenly you see all these companies grow. I think totally. we only tend to see that though when there's so much capital coming in and they're trying to figure out how to deploy it. And I, I wonder the, con- the, the, the contraction that we're seeing right now and the sort of valuation resets and whether, you know, we're going to go through a period where the, 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 the Darwinian selection will see these companies that really are the stars and the stellar ones really kind of get that escape velocity, get that capital continue to be put into it and really allow them to shine uh, over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. So the Alexions, the Gileads, you know, the Celgenes, you know, we start to really see the next iteration, the Alnimes, the next iteration of those really coming through. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, makes sense, Ness. What else should we cover here? CNS. Yeah, I know you and I You love forever. CNS. Like, and, yeah. and it almost feels like there are times I talk to you and I think, I feel very, getting, as I get older, I'm like sitting there going, look, I'm, I'm lightly, you know, going to have some neurodegenerative disease, right? That's going to kick in, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, and it's, it's like, I'm always hopeful that we'll identify a drug that's going to deal with Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. And obviously you think about ALS, FTD, you know, uh, Huntington's disease, and the, the list just goes on and on and on. And yet we never seem to get there. So, you know, I we've know. had negative hits in AD, we've had negative hits in ALS, we've had it in Huntington's. You know, I, I don't know if there's FTD data out yet. I know that there's a couple of groups now in the clinic on it. Um, wh- are you still optimistic or are you are you tempered? Like, where are you? I was like an 8 out of 10 probably three or four years ago in this whole genetic medicine wave in CNS. I'm probably more like a 5 or 6 now. Like, just in terms of, like, I think long term, mid to long term. So, so I guess just maybe take a step back for a second, right? What, what Ness is referring to and what I think is the most exciting trend in CNS is, you know, you look across different neurodegenerative diseases, you know, be it Parkinson's, frontotemporal dementia, ALS. I mean, we're, we're kind of getting more towards this segmentation of patients into genetic subsets that seems to be an obvious necessity, right? I mean, you can't tell me that Alzheimer's is one disease when some patients are progressing rapidly and then and dying in two to four years and others live for 20 years, right? I mean, the heterogeneity is just way too great to, to kind of assume that there's only one or two common biological underlying drivers in these diseases. So I think the progress you've made with kind of targeted therapies in CNS is incredibly exciting. I think, you know, if we kind of talk about some of these failures, right? I mean, let's, let's throw Alzheimer's a little bit on the side in that you know, more A-beta failures are more of the same historically. 
But, you know, the ALS failure with Sod 1, which who knows, maybe that gets resurrected. But then C9 or uh, 7.2, you know, Electra had some early programming data that was a bit equivocal. I mean, I guess I, I, I have gotten a little bit less optimistic, right? I'm, I'm, I think our team is trying hard to think about how do we generalize from those setbacks to other companies and how do we weigh, you know, setback specific factors like the modality um, versus actual the target, right, or the population or just maybe the fact that we never really actually knew what we were talking about. I do want to say that, you know, for some of these failures, right, I mean, three of them are ASO failures. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, Nass. If you look at Huntington's, if you look at, you know, even ALS, right, which definitely has spinal cord components, but other brain components uh, in different tissues, right? We still don't really understand, you know, delivery, right? I mean, a lot of the work and kind of backing into where we're getting target engagement in people is based from either, you know, small, like, a, like an autopsy here or there, right, which isn't a live snapshot of the brain, some non-human primate studies, some mouse studies. And, you know, when you see 40% Huntington knockdown in the, in the CSF and it's an intrathecally injected ASO, you kind of don't really know what that means, right? So I want to be careful that, you know, I think with the ASO modality, you know, the success in SMA was so exciting, um, but SMA is a spinal cord disease, right? We're delivering to the tissue of interest. We might not be in other areas. So I want to be careful, right? Because we do have some other small molecule programs coming to these different genetic targets, and that, and that is pretty interesting. And I do still think that there's that there should be excitement, right, for small molecules and in LARC2 or progranulin or things like that. But I guess where I maybe have been uh, become a little bit more kind of humble, right, in my, in my own ability to, to pick stocks in this area, to get super excited about early stage science is the more companies and the more capital that's been raised here, sometimes as an analyst and investor, you get smarter because you just get to leverage the expertise of a lot of different people. And I think what spooked me a bit about this genetic wave in CNS is a lot of times, even though we can even identify a genetic hit, we still don't understand the actual function of the protein um, or neurotrophic factor that we're talking about. Sometimes we don't even understand the directionality of the genetics, right? C9 ORF is a gain of function, is it loss of function, is it both? Um, and then separately, we don't understand the window of intervention yet, right? So, you know, you've got a scenario like FPD where the MRI changes before any symptoms appear are extraordinary. So I don't want to be a bummer um, at the end of the day, right? I feel like we've made so much progress. And I think, you know, as an analyst, right, I am just trying to find CNS programs that have, you know, the best we can do in biology and then the least risk, risk stacking outside of the biology, right? So can we check the box on biodistribution? Can we check the box on therapeutic index within the brain? Do we actually understand the target engagement marker? I think like, I feel like next 10 years from now, we, we could be in a really different place and we could even still be talking about some of the same genetic targets with a lot more information. My only concern, right, is an analyst who, you know, we talked about genetic medicine, which is about ha half of what I do on the research side. The other half of what I do is CNS. My only worry is do investors just get super discouraged because the first try at a lot of these new targets doesn't work out because it might not right for many of them. And it already hasn't for some of them, but, um, but I feel like we've, we've come a long way, right. Um, because, you know, with a beta, right. I think we kind of at this point have some of the final tests of it and either it's going to work and have a small effect or it's not. Um, and already, right. You've got a lot of money being put behind new targets like trem two that, you know, maybe more pleiotropic and have more of a genetic basis. So I think there's reasons for optimism, but, I, look, I, I I admit you still you definitely have to temper it after what we've seen over the past couple of years. That you know, yes, I think that is the problem. Is is are we seeing for ASOs? Are we seeing a class effect here, or is it more of a target effect and by a distribution? Um, the uncertainty, you know, we don't even know really what HCT is doing, and if you knock down the wild type on the mutant form, I what know. actually is going to happen? So there seems to be huge gaps in our understanding of just the underlying biology. Uh, and pathway systems here that are at play. Um, I think patient identification, though, also, you know, I've talked about the, the, the point at which you start to see symptoms or manifestation of the disease. There's been so much damage that's already been done that, you know, it's, it's almost, um, it's very challenging to be able to stop a disease at that point in time 
because neurons seem to be pretty sensitive and, and they may have already started to actually tip over. So they're there, they're functional, but the toxic, whatever toxic moiety actually is within the cell is at a point where there actually is no way to ultimately rescue that, um, that cell. Um, so it seems to be very, very challenging. For yeah, I mean, I think if I could add something to that, Ness, I mean, the one interesting anecdote, right, is, you know, we think of neuroplasticity and obviously plasticity is kind of, it's a, like, uh, how do we even define that as, as a little bit subjective, right? But we think about it as a pediatric phenomenon. And I do think that, you know, it might not be a coincidence that we've seen, you know, more breakthroughs in the pediatric neurology space, right? Look at SMA. Uh, look at Batten's disease, right? Look at this AADC gene therapy. I don't know if you've ever seen those patient videos, but they're tremendous, right? So, you know, it actually makes me maybe a little bit more, I don't want to say optimistic because it's still early, but definitely interested, right, in, in programs like an Angelman's, right? Because that's an ASO space. Um, it would require broader biodistribution than SMA, but it's pediatric, right? So, so maybe, maybe that might be a little bit easier. I do think that there's still some hope that even in the adult, neurodegenerative space, right, that there are, there is evidence, right, that even when you do have significant anatomical changes, you can still, you can still get more out of the neurons that survive, right? Like I, I, I you know, we heard from a physician one time that on MRI and Parkinson's, you have in some of the neural structures involved in Parkinson's over 50% atrophy by the time a patient is diagnosed. And yet everyone who gets levodopa, or I won't say everyone, uh, 80%, most people get levodopa, right? Get better right away, right? And are better for a while and still have a slow trajectory. So, you know, there's, I feel like with CNS, the tough thing is that you can often just have such credible arguments on both sides of the debate, right? Like I can meet three programming companies um, and one can make a really strong case that you shouldn't mess around with sertillin-based upregulation. Another one, Elector, makes a great case for that mechanism. And another one says, you know what? We need to use a gene therapy to express this inside neurons or otherwise, like, none of this stuff's going to work, right? So I still think there's a lot we don't know. But, I mean, I don't know, Ness. Like, you think about 10, 15 years ago, it does feel like we're on the right track, don't you think? Like, I think people have gotten ahead of themselves with this kind of targeted oncology analog, right? Because there's so many other considerations in CNS, right, that might not be... If we're not talking about as model as simple as a tumor that you can biopsy, but I, I do feel like we've come a long way. And I've been on the cell side for, for 10 years, and I started covering CNS stocks about eight years ago, and I was doing more psych. And, you know, at that time, there was, there was like almost no neurodegeneration companies, right? So I want to give the space credit that um, I, I feel like we've learned a lot, and I feel like a lot of those learnings are being applied. Uh, yes. I do worry, though, that with the data coming out of the lack of real, any real positive data, um, and really that we're having to use things like NFL, right, to tell us what's actually going on, um, you know, is, is actually kind of changing investors' appetite, right, from a risk standpoint. You know, to, we talk yeah. about AAV and investor interest there. I think this is another space that investors are looking at and trying to actually understand, you know, what is the risk metrics or what is the risk profile for an investment here and how do I actually, you know, reduce that risk? You know, any spinal cord based disease, you know, we know we can get things in there, you know, obviously Spinraz is a great example of what can be done. Um, but once you get into above, you know, the, the brainstem, let's say things become a lot more challenging for people. Um, so, you know, you we talked about Unicure for another indication earlier. Obviously, they're doing, you know, directed injection, you know, multiple points for injection stereotactic delivery, um, which is a really neat way, you know, to actually deliver. But you can't do it chronically. And from the expertise that's required in the number of centers in the U.S. that actually are able to do it, you, you likely are going to be limited to really small indications uh, to be really get that penetration and effectiveness. So it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, it, it, look, it, it is a real challenge, you know, and I think, I mean, the interesting thing, right, is in CNS, um, you know, from an investor or biotech perspective, right, I mean, Psych has been an awesome place, right, in general, to put your money as an investor, right? I mean, you know, next-gen atypical antipsychotics have, have launched really well. We've had, you know, breakthroughs at the muscarinic companies. Um, you know, maybe the stage depression data didn't didn't replicate the phase two, but that still looks like it's, it's ideally or hopefully on path to becoming a drug that, you know, in the large major depressive disorder spaces is, is likely to get used. So I think in psych, we've actually 
you know, made a lot of progress, right? And there's been a lot of innovation, right? There's been companies, Acadia and Neurocrine, that were functionally created real companies out of, out of indications that weren't treated before. You know, and then in epilepsy, right? I mean, we've got, you know, we've had some big wins in rare epilepsy. There's also been the same trend towards, you know, genetic subsets and uh, more homogeneous populations. Um, you know, something like Centepla, right, which was a dead drug, suddenly is a 70% seizure reduction in Drave. So I, I, I think, you know, not all neuro is, is obviously equal. And, and there are other areas, too, that are arguably, you know, just as complicated as dementia, where there's been a ton of innovation and, and like real winning streaks, right, for investors. So um, I don't want to paint it with a broad brush. But yeah, I mean, I look, you brought up neurofilament, right? I, I used to be the number one neurofilament fan. And, you know, the, the SOD1 data on neurofilament kind of broke my brain, right? The value <laughs> clinical, like almost one and neurofilament looks, looks at a, looks like, you know, what I, what anyone would hope for, right? So I, you know, it's just, it, it's humbling. It's humbling for sure. So if you were to add a third vertical, so you've got, you know, nucleic acid based drugs, right? You've got CNS, if you were to put a third one in there, like 30% of your time you're allocating to, is there any sector or segment that's rising up now that you're looking at and saying, you know what, I think this is the one. This is the one where I really should be allocating additional time or bandwidth to. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't have a perfect answer, right? I mean, I think, you know, in my job, right, in the sell side, if you're, if you're on the buy side and you're an investor, you have to kind of look at everything, right? And, and you can't, you can't pick and choose like I do realistically. Um, you know, I've done some oncology in the past that do less now. And, you know, I think in the, on the sell side, right, there's so many of us that I think you, trying to have a couple areas of expertise is, is really the only way you can, you can realistically add value. I am really, I'm not, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to Ness, right, who is the, uh, again, founder of Intellia for anyone listening who didn't know and also is involved in some other really, really cool companies in this space. I am super interested in, in, in next generation genetic medicine modalities. Um, you know, I feel like kind of like you said, right, with RNAi, we we're going to treat every disease, then we were going to treat no diseases. Now it looks like we're making great progress in some diseases, but there's other limitations. Um, so I think, you know, if we're talking about, you know, things like, uh, you know, CRISPR editing, base editing, you know, we didn't really talk about ADAR, right? Um, you know, I cover Wave, who's got some ADAR. There's some other private companies. I mean, that that seems like some bio. There's some definitely some biological questions there, but you know, a lot of potential interesting promise. Um, I, I think for myself, right, that those are areas I'm definitely interested in going deeper in, right? Because I feel like having seen the the life cycle of Almylum, like you did, I, I think you can add some some perspective there. I guess the last thing too is. You know, even within oligos, right? We, you mentioned the transparent stuff with, with dying and avidity, right? I mean, delivery to other tissues is also um, something, even if you're talking about delivering molecules, right, that are not totally novel. Um, I mean, I mean, that area is kind of blowing up, right? And mm -hmm. I think, you know, muscle is an area where over the next few years, we could really have some big breakthroughs. Because when you think about it, um, something like DMD, right? I mean, it does feel like with where we're at, um, I don't want to trivialize it, right? It's a terrible, tough disease. There are questions around window of intervention, but it does feel like it's more of a delivery problem, right? We understand, uh, we think, right, that exon skipping works. Uh, First-gen products make very little dystrophin. Their biodistribution is not preferential to muscle. Um, and now we've got conjugated drugs, either be it with transparent, either be it with uh, peptides, right, that in non-human primates um, can generate, you know, incredible levels of exon skipping high levels of dystrophin in mice. And the important thing, right, is, look, we can always say, oh, you know, lots of companies have cured DMD in a mouse or in a non-human primate, but we're talking about high levels of target engagement at doses that, you know, seem like they could be directly achievable in early patient studies, right? And that's what's different. If we look back at the original failures and muscle, um, I think hindsight's twenty twenty, but a number of the products that look good preclinically look good at extremely high doses that were unattainable in people. So, I think delivery, right, to muscle, to brain, like with Denali, like those are those are two things, right, where even repurposing modalities we understand, like ASOs and enzymes, uh, could be really intriguing. But then, yeah, on the editing side, kind of like I said to you about the regulatory stuff, from my seat, I'm still kind of trying to figure out the degree to which as an analyst you can have an edge on regulatory risk. But I'm definitely open-minded because I can kind of 
I can certainly see the blue sky case for some of these technologies. Let me, uh, let me ask you, Ness, if you were me, um, where would you direct, uh, where, where, where should I direct more of my time over the next five years? <laughs> Any company I build. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Look, I think, you know, I, so where am I spending my time? I am spending my time on new modalities, right? So how do, you know, what are the new modalities out there? That um that we can actually co-opt to you know and leverage broadly across multiple different indications right so you know some of the TRNA work is looking interesting um obviously some of the Protac uh, work um looks really actually pretty interesting um the you know the next generation of editing I, I am concerned that we're getting we're getting very big with these constructs you know linkers going in putting catalytic domains onto it there's got to be a more elegant way for us to actually do that self-replicating RNA I'm kind of watching it to see. Like, are we going to get to a place that will actually really allow us to change the overall TI metrics for our drugs, right? So a lot less having to get into the cell and then we're getting self-amplification. Uh, delivering to spleen, kidney. So delivery is a big, big component of where I'm yep. spending my time. Indication, uh, um, target selection. I really think that we are at a point, I go back to my commoditization. Like a lot of these technologies are being commoditized really quickly. So how are we going to utilize them and deploy them for the right indications? And it's, it's, we, we've all of this human genetic data that's out there. You know, we have longitudinal data. How can we actually analyze it and utilize it to actually figure out what's the most appropriate um, target and where that fits from a biological standpoint and, pay, and, and disease progression? You know, I, I suspect different targets for different points uh, in the spectrum of the disease presentation. So, you know, we're spending more and more time, obviously, on the AI and ML side, so artificial intelligence and machine learning, for can we actually start to utilize that to analyze these massive net data sets from disparate groups? So give us uniformity across the data itself and then start to analyze that. And then I think we're a terrible patient um, enrollment criteria. You know, I think part of the reason why I think we're seeing failures in the clinic um, is it's 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 all comers. It's almost like you're trying to find a signal in one patient that you're going to extrapolate it as you think that. Give, about me, running give me an example of something like that. I don't know if you don't want to disparage a trial that read out recently, but where do you think that's been an issue? I, I think so. I, you know, we talk about CNS disease. You know, so in a lot of CNS dis- diseases, uh, if we if we think about you know MDD and uh, major depressive disorder, uh, any of the schizophrenia, psychotic, antipsychotics. Um, our enrollment criteria for those. I look at our enrollment criteria for a lot of the oncology studies, um, and it 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 very much feels like we're trying to get some signal and then really bootstrapping up from that, rather than having a far more, um, as uh, not to again not to this is not easy to do right. But how do we really think about defining that patient population that we should be actually utilizing these drugs in? Genetic medicines do make it somewhat easier, you know, especially when you're talking about knocking things down or you're making and you're, you're doing eggs and skipping where effectively we do know what the underlying genetic factors are that are driving the diseases. But, you know, we talk about neurodegeneration, we talked about antipsychotics, we talk about oncology. We don't, in most cases, we actually do not understand what the drivers for these diseases actually are. So again, as we think about that patient enrollment criteria and progression of disease, I also think background, you know, for any genetic disease is a critical component, right? So what background, both from a genetic standpoint and overall geographic or environmental background, are these actually being represented or presented on? So, you know, we're, we're, we get back into how do we analyze this data and actually utilize it and draw strong correlations uh, to enable us to actually develop the drugs. Um, so to me, that's they're probably the key areas that we're spending, or I'm spending a lot of time trying to actually understand and figure out. Last one for you. This is the uh, crystal ball gazing, right? So take out your crystal ball, look into it. You know, what's your take on the market right now? Where are we going? Are there any themes that you're starting to see emerge? Um, where when when are we going to get back into a bull market where there's going to be 200 IPOs in a year? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I feel like a cliche when I talk about this stuff because it's so hard to have, you know, a differentiated view. I think, I mean, look, there was a lot of company creation and, you know, there's a perception right now from some investors that, hey, man, the failure rate we're seeing in biotech is so much higher than before. And it's probably because, just, you know, that, that investor might be aware of more companies now because more companies went public earlier. And so, you know, perhaps some of that stuff needs to kind of wash itself out and will 
um, over time. And it, it's hard to kind of opine. And, you know, again, I don't want to sound like the guy who says, hey, you know, some of these companies are going to fade, some are going to win, and then we'll reset. Yeah, maybe that's true. I think short term, here's kind of what I'm what I'm sort of looking for, you know, to make investors, I think, more, more comfortable to come back into the space. Um, you know, one is we've got three big binary events this summer, right? So, you know, you have this perception of, um, you know, that biotech, right, is maybe regressed the mean a little bit on the clinical risk side. Well, you know, we've got phase three data from Karuna, we've got phase three data from Almilum, and then we've got data from Blueprint all this summer. And I think, you know, if I'm an investor in biotech, I'm hoping that two out of three of these are great. Um, second thing, right, is, is M&A. You know, I mean, I think, you know, most investors, right, when we're not talking about large cap companies that, you know, trade on earnings, right, I think we all can kind of agree that there's some level of subjectivity to valuing a mid-cap biotech company. What do you do for the terminal value? What do you think for R&D reinvestment? You know, what's the discount rate, right? I mean, discount rates for biotech, it's just, it's, it's tricky, right? So with that being said, you know, I think when we get M&A in the space and we get a string of deals, I think it can make everybody feel a little bit better that the valuation levels that we're at right now are not very rich. And I mean, I'm hopeful that we're going to get more in a, more M&A over the rest of this year, right? Just because, you know, I think when we come out of one of these big bull markets, the M&A never happens as fast as investors and analysts want it to, because I think it takes longer for companies to kind of get accustomed to a new trading range for their stock. And rightfully so, right? I mean, if you're if you're at a company, I mean, you know, you probably shouldn't make a decision if your stock is down a lot over three months to say, oh, man, now we're stuck here. We got to. So, you know, I think, you know, if, if we kind of stay in this sort of XPI in the 80s range, I mean, I think realistically what the 52 week high is is going to reset forward looking kind of thought processes from management teams and where they're going to have to recapitalize is going to be at a new level. And so I think, you know, the M&A effect might have been kind of slowed so far by less willing sellers, but it seems like that's going to naturally change over time. And then, you know, to that point, I do think that investors in biotech on the M&A side are still trying to kind of understand what's going to happen with the FTC, right? And, you know, when we talk about a small cap biotech company with M&A potential, the bull case is often that someone could buy them. And that person is usually someone who's interested in that therapeutic area. Well, you know, if, you know, again, I don't cover Seattle Genetics, I don't cover Merck, so I, I shouldn't opine on this with an actual investment view. But like, let's see if that deal does happen, right? Our analyst, Steve Willie, has, has written on the possibility of that. And then let's see what, what, if anything, needs to be divested and kind of how all that works. And, you know, I think that that would be helpful for an investor who's looking at a small company, let's say in the hereditary angioedema space, and they're thinking about buyers, if, if they suddenly know that a buyer in HE can buy them or can't buy them. So, I think those are two things, right? Clinical catalysts and M&A that are imminent. I think on the drug pricing side, right, we're seeing more legislation. I feel like investors, right or wrong, have kind of become a little bit jaded to it. I mean, I'm not being dismissive. Some of the stuff that's being thrown out there does seem like it could be problematic, but we'll see, you know, how many drugs are affected, when it's implemented, if it holds up, what actually gets through. So, but I think on the clinical catalyst side, right, if we have good data, innovative companies, companies getting bought by farmers who need to buy growth. I mean, I don't know if that's going to get us back to kind of what you said, Ness, with, with you know, so many IPOs, but could that be enough to reopen the IPO window for, for companies that are ready? I, I definitely think so. Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, there's been so much talk about CGEN, like, is it a mirage or actually is it real, right? Is, is a transaction going to happen here or not? Because I think that people are... are looking at that to see if that actually is going to be the catalyst or the first domino from a larger side actually flow. Obviously, we saw Biohaven get taken out. Um, right. But, you know, the, the M&A, it's always that M&A just takes longer. And I think people get so far into the cycle, they then start looking and saying, well, are things about to turn? If I can, if I can eke myself out by another quarter, two quarters, three quarters, will the tides have turned? And I'll have, if I sell today, I'll, I'll have looked as if I sold at the wrong time. But balance sheets are a very sobering uh, element, right? Like the, the, your out of cash state is your out of cash state. Uh, and you can trim as much as you want. But, you know, this idea about headcount reduction, you know, killing programs within your pipeline, there's an upfront cost to, to actually affect that. Um, that if you're in a year or less of cash, that has actually a material negative impact on your balance sheet. So you're, you're almost reducing that out of cash state. Um, 
you know, uh, by by a material amount, by actually cutting headcount and cutting those pipelines. If you don't have, let's say, two years or 18 to 24, 36 months of cash on the books. So it's it's going to be interesting. You know, there, you know, if the, if, if the numbers are real at 60 to 70 percent of sort of small, small caps that need to actually go out and raise this year. You know, we really haven't seen that that onslaught yet hit the market um, and raise the capital. So, you know, will it open up before the end of the end of the year? If it doesn't, I think we're going to see a lot of companies in Q1 out hunting for buyers at very distressed prices. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting. Awesome, Dad. Well, listen, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. As always, great to talk to you and get your thoughts on these uh, various items. Hope I'll be able to invite you back at some point in the future. Paul, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It was awesome talking to you. Uh, super fun. I learned a lot from you too. And, and let's, let's stay in touch on all the stuff you're working on. Sounds good. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 